Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and ebooks online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Chelsea Green Publishing is an employee-owned company recognized as a leader in content about organic farming and gardening, homesteading, local food, restorative living, regenerative agriculture, and diet-focused integrative health. Publishing expert authors that bring in-depth practical knowledge to life with books, ebooks, and audiobooks. Go to chelseagreen.com and enter the code EDGE30, that's capital E-D-G-E, number 30, at checkout to receive a special Abundant Edge podcast discount on your next print book purchase. And be sure to sign up for their newsletter and stay up to date on new releases. Chelsea Green Publishing, cultivating change from the ground up. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us again on another Regenerative Roundtable. I'm here with my other two colleagues, Jeremy Fellows. Hi, guys. How are we, how we doing out there? And Neil Haggerty on this side. Good to talk to everybody again. <laughs> As we have been doing all day. So this has been a really uh, eventful month. We've had a lot going on. We're right in the middle of the shift of the two major seasons of this area. Let's talk about some of the projects that we've been working on lately because there's a million of them. Um, so Neil and I have been uh, pretty focused on this uh, client outreach kind of stuff, working on our um, this little landscaping business that we have going on. Uh, it's going well. It, it does take a lot of our time, but um, you know we're finally seeing some fruits of our labor. It's, it's great because it feeds our nursery, which is, is huge, you know, to have sort of, um, you know, people on demand ready to buy plants off of us, ready to buy compost is great. So, like, it's not um, a work in vain in any way. It's, it sets up a lot of important links. Well, how's sort of the process of how you, you plan that out? Do you try and get the clients first, figure out what plants they need, then propagate them and then sell them? Or have we been doing it in a different order? It kind of works in both ways. Sometimes people like call us and like, hey, we need seeds. They're like, all right. Um, well, seeds <laughs> seeds are great, but like, how about we offer you a service, you know, where we can make sure that your garden really flourishes. So sometimes we get jobs from the nursery itself. So they feed off of each other. Otherwise, it would just be like way too much work, way too far out of our way to really like makes sense for like being efficient with, with you know everything that we're doing here you know yeah i mean we definitely have like a definitely have a focus in our nursery on stuff that grows well here like native heirloom plants and those are the ones that look best they're the lowest maintenance and uh yeah it's great we've got this 
whole system started now where we're training up local workers and you know just like creating some employment um with the local people um and you know a lot of what we plant in our it's it's fun because we do our gardens where people can grow their veg and their annual stuff but we always border it with like a lot of perennial species that do all the things we've talked about before fix nitrogen give shade break wind but also you know the more i see it provide habitat you know and 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 we get to plant a lot of these like species that we love you know like these kind of like nitrogen fixing uh native hardwoods around the perimeters of properties that are otherwise not valued and and going in danger them yeah we can propagate them we propagate them here and and move them on and you know a lot of what we're seeing now is the need to pay attention to the business aspect of running the farm because we only have an acre here so yeah we need to make it we need to generate abundance on the land and and then move it so that we can so that we can keep the cash flow going and keep investing and and keep this place kind of chugging along so it's kind of like a balancing act it's a little bit uh honestly a little bit exhausting at times but it's it's fun yeah we constantly need to check in and see like is our you know is that horizon point you know still you know of like where we're trying to go with things is that still in check when we're making decisions when we're moving forward with new plans new things that occupy our time um, and our investments as well. Reinvesting in certain things is, is huge. And pivoting with the things that change in the seasons. Like we're just coming out of the rainy season right now and getting back and irrigating the entire market garden, but also those perimeters that we established in the rainy season that were kind of taking care of themselves now need to kind of be babied a little bit yeah, more. Reforestation in a, in a wet, dry climate is tricky because... Um, even though we do plant like we use sort of successional models and we plant like hardier species around the perimeters it's like it's tough to make sure that they all survive even if you get them in at the start of rainy season or midway through rainy season they need most lately need watering so that they can I think the trick is to kind of get them in the ground early in the rainy season ready? Yeah, we're recording. Yeah, you know, get them in the ground at the, you know, early in the rainy season so that they get established during that first season, maintain them over the dry season. That's the tricky part. I've talked to people who've, like, trying to be refo- trying to reforest a piece of land where there's no water, and it, it, it is tough because I feel like rainy seasons are getting, the rain's becoming more infrequent and heavier, so harder to absorb for plants. So if you don't have irrigation, it, it, it's tough. Luckily, we do so. Um, yeah, I think the trick is to get them get them through that first rainy season, maintain them during the dry season, and then if they get a full rainy season second time round, they can just they're jump. good at that yeah, point. They're you're, good at that point. Yeah, you may have to water them once or twice through the rainy season, but a big part of this is like the excavation. Like you know, if you don't have enough time to water them, you know, you dig a bigger hole, you add more carbon, you know, rich organic uh, compost as you can even like semi unbroken down stuff is great actually because um it, it's got a, it's obviously very high carbon content it hasn't like exhausted a lot of the carbon so that will store a lot more water and that'll help loads and also keep the um, microbial community active down down below the plant and is this what you guys have been doing for the avocado reforestation project that you just completed last, this last week? Because I know that there's been some tricks with getting involvement from the owners of the land, but 
there are some other things that you can do to help to cut on cut down on the maintenance in order to uh, get a better success rate for the plants and the trees that you do put in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why um, earthworks are really important. That's why all all tree planting should be should be preceded by some kind of appropriate form of earthworks, even if it's just putting dead barriers on contour across the land so that when rain does fall, it actually soaks in. And as Jer says, so much of it comes down to the carbon content of the soil. Even if even if you've got a big piece of land and you can't do these like extensive uh, soil remediations, just planting the plants in like a good... Um, you know, in a good well-dug hole with plenty of compost in it uh, and, and some kind of earthworks alongside that. So, yeah, that's why here it's pretty simple. Here it's rocky soil, so you need to move the rocks downhill, place them across contour in a kind of a stable form. Um, you know, and, and so doing that, but also we're only doing the reforestation now on areas close to our land over the dry season so that we can irrigate those plants. I kind of... It seems counterintuitive to even try and plant trees here in dry season, but you actually can. Again, if you give them a nice start, it's almost like putting them out into a nursery. It does work in a sense because then if if they get water a couple of times a week over the dry season, um, which we're able to do because of our neighbor's land, we, we use the same water lines that we have going into our land. Um, and uh, yeah, then hopefully they've got their they've got a decent root system in so that they can just take off during the dry season during the rainy season. Um, and yeah. yeah, I think I mean this is this is the tricky thing about doing community projects. It is getting buy-in from people is tough, um, and you have to it it pushes you, you know, because you're like, yeah, we've started this project, and we can say to local people, we will plant trees in your land. Um, and it's, you know, you're, you get avocados, you get better shade for your coffee, you get all these nitrogen fixers, all these extra food crops. Um, and yeah, most, that's what actually what's great about the coffee project is that, um, you know, we've, we've put up this Beneficio, this coffee processing unit, and we're buying, um, we're buying coffee off coffee farmers and you can establish a relationship and trust with people that way. So now people who come in and I say, oh yeah, by the way, you've got a coffee field. How would you feel about us planting native trees and, and avocado and heirloom avocados on it? Um, and you can kind of tell, you can sort of tell the guys who will look after those trees because really right now, yeah, we are. We're we're starting small with this reforestation project. We're working mostly with our neighbors, and disappointingly, somewhat the the reception from our neighbors was a little a little slow. You know, they were kind of like, "Yeah, that's cool. I guess do we have to do anything?" Right. <laughs> you know, which was like not really the response I was looking for. But you know, you gotta understand. Um, it's a the ball starts moving slow. Um, but like you said, Neil. Um, the more people we get in contact with, you really start to, like, discern who's really willing and, and, like, excited about doing this. Like, you know, a better way of looking at it would be someone coming to us and being like, I fucking love this idea. Uh, let's, you know, let's do this with my with my spot, you know. I'm, I'm happy to do it. And, like... And I think that's going to start happening. It was the same with the coffee. It was, like, you know, people are like, oh, yeah, you guys buy coffee. Yeah, sure you do, you know, because we're just these gringos. They don't... You know, we're still getting to know a lot of people around here. Um, and we also demand a higher quality coffee because we pay yeah. better for the amount that we buy, too. 
um, as per the criteria that that Tim, who buys the the dried pergamino off of us, needs. Yeah, Tim, we did the we did the. Well, here, actually, let's with Tim. yeah, let's come back to talking about the coffee beneficio because that's kind of a whole section in its own. I wanted to get back to a question that actually came up on one of our farm tours. We had a friend from a community next to us uh, come over and who was interested in in buying compost, and he said to us that he was trying to re um, kind of reestablish better quality soil on this this very heavy slope that he has quite far up the valley, and He's got about three acres and was thinking of covering all of that with the compost that we that we sell. Well, first of all, we definitely don't sell enough compost to cover yeah, three acres. And it's a very, very impractical and inefficient way to boost soil unless you just have unlimited money and labor. Yeah, it's a hard so, way. what would it's be a, a better way. way to help to reestablish healthy soils on a more of a broad acre context, especially in this kind of wet, dry tropics where we live and on the slopes that we're talking about. Yeah, so, you know, in regards to climate, the best way to do a lot of these big, you know, projects on marginal lands, um, the first thing you want to try to figure out is how can you get these earthworks rolling, especially during the dry season, um, because you're not planting. You know, you're if you're in earthworks phase, you're just, you know, moving earth all around the area. You're not going to plant anyways, and it's dry um as well so i mean in my experience it's a lot easier to excavate dry soil than wet soil when it's sticky mud like that oh forget about it like doubles your labor and then you've got erosion issues to deal with whereas if you get it all set up during the dry season you're ready to go with it and in terms of fertility the if you can get the um earthwork set up in the in just you know three years with everything growing in it'll be accumulating so much so many more resources than it would have initially that you know, you can calculate how much organic matter is being collected on the land. And if this guy wants to bring in that much compost, it's like, man, if you set up your earthworks, you'll have collected all that carbon matter. Yeah, like, plus if you d- if you do the opposite, if you just go dumping compost on lands that have good up earthworks, it'll just erode off even. You know, it's the yeah. first stuff that will get eroded away. Uh, in, I mean, in general here, in any climate, I think, using vegetation to build up... Um, to build the soil is an, a hell of a lot more effective than bringing in compost. Yeah, uh, composting is a great technique, and it, you know, in terms definitely in terms of um, organic farming, stuff. any yeah. kind of organic farming. If it's really your limiting factor is how much organic matter can you get onto your land. You know yeah. that's, and that's why. Well, let's talk a little bit too about how animals can be an active. Uh, benefit in creating the, or kind of accelerating those cycles and rather than just having things oxidize when they fall onto the floor turned into something that's really soiled by the time it comes out of them yeah i mean animals are just integral in terms of um nutrient cycling uh, there's there's reams of stuff on this you know anyone anyone interested in like large-scale um so, uh, regeneration of arid climates should really look I think at uh, Alan Savory stuff he's got loads of stuff on using livestock and, and grasses to, to regenerate land and it's you know it's so effective in the tropics me and Jared were talking about this like in, in the tropics it's not particularly effective actually using um Losing, uh, at least large ruminants using cattle and, and grasslands on 
Yeah. I mean, I mean, essentially, the point I th- or the point for me is like, if the natural ecosystem looks like a savanna land or would have a lot of grasses on it, or at least would have grasses as being the precursor to uh, to a later, more stable stage of of uh, succession. Then grasslands and herbivores are a great strategy, but here on steep lands in the tropics where you have like, and where really grasses are barely part of the succession, things want to go back to being densely forested here very, very quickly. So it's like not the model you would use. We're lucky that we have a lot of forest edge habitat with the river for our animal system. Because that's what goats like, and it's it's good for the its... goats do really well in this. Yeah, I mean, with goats, those are, goats are great here. Goats are amazing here. But again, cut and carry, and pasturing along common lands is a more effective strategy. I mean, we don't have the luxury here of uh, being able to fence off huge areas of property and rotate goats it's, around. It doesn't the, make any sense with the slope. With the you know the soil is just really not the geography doesn't lend itself as well. No. Like, so it's easier for us just to have a small piece of land and, and to send the goats out to pasture and to you know we have just a river brush. here, so we have just, a lot of areas that are just uh, green that aren't really suitable to plant on all year round. The goats can go and we basically just accumulate all the stuff from around us. Like it's not really being spread back out but they're in very productive ecosystems we have these like river edges and they're just yeah. like yes yeah. sprawling with growth all, all year so it's pretty easy to send the goats down to different areas like that and, and have them do it but yeah i mean <laughs> going back to the earlier point about like the limiting <laughs> the limiting factor when you're organic farming especially in the tropics but i think really anywhere it's just like how much Carbon. organic how much carbon can you add to the system that's like that's basically what your fertility comes down to and you and find these streams and then you're golden and that's, you hook into them that's you why just I mean, pull it in you know i mean that's what we're doing with the with the coffee benefits here we i know we said we go back to that but just anything how much what what organic waste stream is flowing past you me and how can I get that onto <laughs> my property yeah. in an optimal way. Well, so let's talk about that now and some of the other ways that we're doing it aside from directly within the farming models that we have, aside from with the grazing of the goats that we have. Let's first talk about the coffee beneficio because we're really starting to get into the season and nail the the process. We actually had had Tim come by today and look over how we're doing, make some minor tweaks and and continue on. But also even how this building, the house that we're <laughs> sitting under right now, is integrated into the landscape and can contribute to carbon and nutrition in the landscape. So let's start with the coffee beneficio. Jeremy, tell us a little bit about, first of all, the basic model of how it runs and the fertility that we get from it as a byproduct. All right. Yeah, so we're, out, <clears throat> we're really just figuring out how to utilize a lot of this stuff. But we're really excited about it. Um, Basically, you ferment. You um, sorry. You start by depulping the um, the fruit that we buy, and we have a a big sort of like uh, area of discernment with like what we um, what we purchase off of people, and that's that's actually the trickiest part. Everything else is, seems to be easy going, but um, discerning what's the good berries it turns out to be very tricky. And uh, Tim's coaching us through this whole process of looking through people's um, harvest and just making sure that it's. Um, it's that worth is. buying at the price that we're buying it yeah. because we are buying at a, about 25% higher than what they're able to get from the other uh, buyers in, in the valley, right? Right. 
Um, the easy part for us is getting all the pulp off. We're just like, yes, give me that, you know, just like filling up, you know, half toenails at a time. Yeah, we don't have to be nearly as discerning about the pulp that comes off, but the quality of the bean underneath is very important. Yeah, and it's a bit of labor to sort it afterwards as well, but like, you know, the rest of that process is, is, is easy going. Um, we look at these like solid um, waste product that we're getting out of it, just piling up loads of, of pulp down below the animal house and it's uh it's like some of it goes into the animal house as well like depending it's yeah of course we're gonna <laughs> chickens just gonna love so it much. when it goes into the chicken house it's just <laughs> so like, excited it's like anyone who hasn't seen coffee pulp it's like um like the the skin of grapes or something yeah, yeah. but like quite a like, bit thicker it is it they're kind of like small bigger. grapes but it is a much thicker peel and because it has a very simple sugar in the fruit, it seems to attract tons of flies and it breaks down yeah, really chickens, fast and goes yeah. hot I'm guessing really that's quick. What, I'm guessing that's what chickens are excited about. They're like, oh, look at all these bugs! Yeah, they don't care about the actual coffee pulp itself, but it fills up with bugs and then the chickens eat the bugs and it's, it's beautiful actually. And, and that's only the excess. Most of it goes down to make big hot compost piles and then gets turned in once, once it's kind of broken down a little bit, gets turned into a, a worm box that we just finished building a big, worm box which the chickens the chickens will like that even more at that point oh yeah i mean we will eventually have enough worms to just have a free protein source for our chickens for sure yeah that's that's delightful (laughs) that's that's worth looking forward to for sure yeah Yeah, can't wait for that that's Um, the thing is it's all in the early stages right now but really the benefits are going to come as these systems start to mature one one thing we haven't really seen the results of yet, but um, I'm very excited about because it's honestly a, a common issue with coffee farmers is the liquid uh, effluent that we're dealing with, which they call aguas mieles here. Honey water. Honey water. It's, you know, it's actually is delightful it stuff is, yeah. when it first comes out, but oftentimes people leave it in a yeah. anaerobic pool or pond or even lagoons on big on big farms they have lagoons of this stuff yeah. and it's and it's gross it's just and rotting it's not it's used just, and it's, it's unfortunate but it's by code they actually have inspectors <laughs> I mean, come same, around that mandate that you do it that way with the coffee pot this is all all we're doing it's like childishly easy all we're doing is we're turning normal waste products into resources yeah and you know and, and that kind of just, is always the goal, it's, with, oh, regardless it's so of what you're simple. doing. I think, so, I think we came uh, about, you know, deciding to do this from a completely different angle than what most people do. Most people are like, oh, yeah, we're going to turn a profit and, like, get these, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's like, true. We're like, no, we just want all that gross stuff. We want all the Yeah, we want all the waste. We all want all the waste, exactly. Yeah. And, it, it, but it's and the, the fact that it makes some money it's is great. Everything. But it's like the... Yeah, we have goats, and the goat's cheese is is lovely, and it it, it pays definitely the pays the bills, and it it's brings good. other things. But the mineral rich goat manure that gets composted and mixed with the manures from other animals and a couple of other things, and turns into black black crumbly gold. That's that's our real currency, and so. Well, what about the whey that comes off of the cheese production that, as yeah. well? We're fermenting the cracked corn and adding a protein source in with the chicken, chicken feed as feed, well. You know, so we have almost um, no waste know, from those, and, and nearly huge, and and the, you know the fact that our chickens, while the goat manure is sitting there composting, the chickens are getting fat on the bugs that are building up in it. So, you know, it's just you create so much abundance on your farm when you stop producing waste it's not and this whole thing about it's insane you know this whole thing about needing to have like government uh regulations to so the farmers will be less wasteful it's just like 
do just stop giving them subsidies and they'll have to come up with creative ways of turning this waste into profit and then the land gets healthier the farmer gets wealthy you know the farmer gets uh, richer everybody wins these are insane debates people are having yeah know? and it's not particularly complicated I mean, no it's so easy <laughs> yeah mean, we're not we're not reinventing the wheel here this is yeah, not original to us me, at anyone all. i'm not a smart guy like if i can do this <laughs> yeah trust, so me, trust everyone me. out there if we can do this i mean a part of it solid. is like how lazy can we be because if you're trucking this stuff away or having to come up with chemical solutions to deal with these things as they ferment and start to get gross you're doing more work. Yeah, and spending more money. And we're just letting our different animal systems and the microbiome of this area do that work for us so that we don't have to expend extra labor. Yeah, so, like, the liquid stuff is is very heavy and, like, and, you know, it's not something that you really want to deal with if it, if it builds up and gets nasty, especially, man, like... We'll talk about how with... we're processing the aguas mieles, the yeah, running water. Yeah, I mean... Flipping the tortilla, like, we just, before we even did it, we were just like, oh, hell yeah. Like, we know we know that fish love this, like, sort of, like, uh, bent thing, which we call it, or sludge that sits at the bottom of a pond. And if you incorporate oxygenated fresh water to this nutrient stream that's coming in there, it creates an extremely healthy microorgan- uh, microbiotic um community down in the bottom of this pond man and like this is great stuff and we every once in a while we can just take that sludge out of there i mean it's it's important that the pond is built so that we can just flip a switch and it it empties out and it has this like couple inches of sludge on the bottom it's great scoop that out and guess what also it never gets too dirty because we also have water filtering plants and in the water as well the water hyacinth helps to keep at least oxygenated and most of yeah any excess nutrients just get turned into water hyacinth yeah which gets and the overflow goes where inadvertently you know turned into ducks I mean, a lot, a lot of the, I think a lot of seeing the world through a permaculture lens is just seeing the world through an energy lens. Yeah. You know, it's just like... How much turn, can you keep you it and transform it in your own space? How many times can you, can you pass the energy around your system? So it's like, yeah, yeah. the Aguas the, Mieles get turned into water hyacinth and sludge. The sludge gets turned into vegetables and ducks and fish. And those get turned into us. Get turned into this guy and <laughs> yeah. these guys. And, and then our waste products. That's what you're listening to. You're listening to. <laughs> I was me always. Yeah. Like, that's what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen with that. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you're happy. Yeah. So, well, um, you can either. It's turn... debatable whether that's a good use for all of those things. Right. <laughs> in the end, you choose, you choose what to do with it. And yeah, it just like... means we're here talking to you guys. Um, I hope that's okay. Um, and a big part of it, a big part of it actually just to finish up with the with the pond design like getting all the stuff out of the the actual pool is great but we also have the overflow sort of meanders its way through the property and so there's loads of it's just making coming. contact with lots of things all yeah. the time that's all you have to do and with less of our work you can just sit there and look at all the oh we love doing stuff. that just we like, love doing that you just sit there and say, look at that I'll go and that's the there. thing that's yeah that's another way of looking at it. it's like these big uh, centralized processing units where the byproducts just sit there. The big problem is they don't; in, they're not interacting with anything, so they're dead systems. You know, yeah. it's like I can't remember who it was. Some permaculturalist one. I, was, you know, the difference between a, a living thing and a dead thing is that the living thing is interacting with all these things around it, and 
you know, once you die, that those interactions stop. Um, and and it, it's that, you know, these big centralized processing units where the piles of coffee pulp or rice husks or, uh, or, or, just or animal shit yeah. or whatever just, like, sit manures. in these manures, animal manures. They just, like, sit in these, like, big pits <laughs> where they become like, this disgusting problem. They're just not interacting with anything. And, and eventually, actually, you know, in Ireland, they get, like, loaded into sprayers and spray oh, yeah. out onto the, the pasture you know <laughs> it's, I mean, not, it's not it's not horrible. the worst thing. at least at least they interact a little bit with but the it's grass, very but it's inefficient much it's so inefficient and we, mostly where they end up is getting leached off into the lakes and rivers yeah and we just like, dug we're trench- too much fertility <laughs> like, in they the have lakes these big sprays of like we just dug trenches around and like water goes through yeah. them and there's you know what, much less energy but it's expended like to, again to describe that system in a, in a sort of a permaculture lens it's just like how many times is that fertility you know what with our animal shit it like builds up with worms and flies you know with our goat shit for example it builds up it like goes into piles where it like compost generates worms and and bugs those different phases chickens then like fully compost down gets mixed with other manures gets turned into uh you know kind of bokashi fertilizer gets returned to land it's so slow so there's so many beneficial Yeah, they call it immobilization of... You um, trap it with carbon first. That's how you really immobilize it, stop it smelling. Um, versus the kind of like slurry system where it's just like, boom, slurry pit, boom, yeah, field yeah. in a mobile form, hasn't been trapped by carbon. It's off the property before you know it. It's know? moving in both directions. The smell you... That's burns your eyeballs. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's, it's just like volatilizing. It's just turning into gases in front of your face. Yeah. Like, that's awesome. Look at that. <laughs> that's going over yeah, wherever it's great going. wherever it's going out it's, to. You know, it's kind of like when I was young and I would leave the door open when the fire was on, and my dad was like, "Great, I'm like waste. I'm spending money so that you can heat the." The outdoors, the yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's what you're doing. You're watching that and you're hating it too because it's just disgusting. Yeah. This is, I like, mean, this is amazing kind of a concept. <laughs> you know, use your senses. You know, Nobody likes good. this. Nobody <laughs> likes. And that's why it's gross. That's why it smells bad. That's your senses telling you <laughs> this is a horrible. You did this idea. wrong. I mean, if that much is coming into the air, imagine how much is leaching into the soil uh, like, mm, or, and away and into the rivers and and you know that's another like another thing we want to start doing here. We you know who knows if we'll get to this next week or if it'll be a couple of weeks from <laughs> I now. I think we should do it next week. I wish you tomorrow. All right. Uh, the lake is this beautiful lake is filling up with these like. Algies, what do they call it in Spanish as a word? Yeah, hidrola. Hidrola. Something like that. It's don't this kind of lake. <laughs> I actually don't mind seeing it because it's kind of like, all right, this is the lake turning all the effluent and waste that's going into it into something kind of useful. But For it, like, us, at least. I mean, it cuts off oxygen to the fish and it's like definitely becomes invasive. It prevents if you uh, just sunlight getting it. in deeper as well. If you just but look at if it. If you just look at it. But if you <laughs> take it out of the lake and move it back uphill, which is this kind of anti-entropic thing that I yeah, always bang on about. There you go. Well, um, and, and you compost. It's like, wow, you're like opening up oxygen in the lake. So you're And, and you're taking all this stuff that's just again rushed off the landscape way too soon without having enough positive interactions on the way 
and turn into biomass, bring it back up, and it'll it's that's amazing composting material. So if we can figure out a way of getting that stuff, but this is the land, this is a scale up we're talking about. Yeah, this this is like, yeah, but it's this is a little further down the line, but it's definitely worth looking into. Well, and could well, be you know anyone feeling like they want to invest in a business, we want to start taking this stuff out of the lake in massive quantities, combining with other ingredients we have, and making huge, big amounts of compost, which we can use to. Plant trees in, for our reforest coffee, everything, for change the, the world. <laughs> so let us know if you want to sponsor us through this project. <laughs> yeah, we need boats and trucks and stuff. Yeah, but. yeah. <laughs> Contact Neil Haggerty at pieinthesky.com. No, this is going to happen. Just Yeah, you, you Mark, <laughs> this is going to happen. We're going to do this. Look, All right, yeah. It, no, we'll see if we get to it this season. No, I, it is absolutely a great idea, but... With the, the workload we have in front of us, I can see Dollar, this being I'm a little weird. negativity. <laughs> no, no, we're starting, this is my idea, we're starting with, uh, they call them cayucos, or cayuqueros, the guys on the, these the little kayak boats. Guys. Yeah, these guys, yeah, 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 guys out there. Fishing, we'll just be like, dude, stop fishing, I'll pay you the same amount for the algaes that are killing the fish that you should be catching. And it'll be like in studio. <laughs> yeah bring it over here we're gonna compost it and then next year you can go back to catching fish i just want to see all these guys just like huffing loads of seaweed on their kayak and their kayukos just like yeah again just, it, baby. Like, just trust sit me, you're there. gonna make more off, off of this than crabs <laughs> <laughs> and the more of it you take out the more crabs will come back and yeah. the more of this stuff that we compost plant trees with on the slopes running down into the lake the less you know, so it's this like virtuous cycle, you know. I can see it's yeah, so clear. It's I can always tell when you guys have just had a long conversation with Lorenzo. <laughs> oh yeah, shout yeah. out to Lorenzo. Fuck yeah. This is Lorenzo's Humble. idea, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> see podcast with Lorenzo further back. Yep. I actually interviewed him. So it's better. <laughs> <laughs> actually there's a fantastic agroforestry and um uh, ecological farming course with Lorenzo and Alex from Coaba Farms in Antigua coming up soon. So if you want to check that out, uh, take a look at the courses tab on the website. Let's talk a little bit now about how the seemingly dead systems that we interact with on a daily basis can actually be transformed and contribute to the fertility of the land as well. And now, of course, I'm talking about the buildings. And most people think of buildings as these dead structures on the land and just need maintenance and aren't necessarily really interacting or contributing they're not much. Sexy. That's the problem with buildings. They're yeah. not they're not let's, the sexiest plants. Let's talk about your dead stuff all over. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> dead things you're putting back together in different ways. No, just kidding. There actually is some great living components. So um yeah, tell us about can we talk about your bat the bathrooms you're putting together? Because I want to know more about it. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> Along the way, we've had to make well, we've had the opportunity to make some design changes because this is a slower process and it takes a lot of money. But so we've had the opportunity because this is a slower process building the structures around here, and it takes a lot of the resources and the the funding that uh, <laughs> that is the, just necessary. The funding uh, sucks. It's like <laughs> yeah, the buildings are definitely money. an expensive part, and it's a matter of like how much comfort do you feel like you need and how much are you willing to spend for that compromise but we're you know we're definitely getting to a much higher level of comfort we actually just had a, all of our windows in the upstairs bedrooms installed and that's a huge milestone for us as well yes windows <laughs> windows are a big deal windows <laughs> you never appreciate this. windows so much until you don't have them for a really long time i tell you anyone really should do this 
Move into a little shed <laughs> on the land that you just bought. And or camp in the rainy season. House yeah. Where you go. You will appreciate every single new element of for it. For about a week. It'll, I'll tell you now. It lasts for about a week. You live in a shack. <laughs> you live in a tin shed. And then you move into a tent under a roof. And you think the first two nights, this is like the best. I'll never, I'll never be unhappy or complain about anything again. Right. And then about a week into that <laughs> you're like where are the windows you're just why like, can't I get a base coat plaster on a whole this? new list in your head of things you ah, need this yep. door is so creaky <laughs> yeah. yeah it but doesn't you close get out perfectly of, you get out of the tent you get into your house on a mat I mean that was an amazing moment for me when Adriana left for a month and it was like worked every evening trying to get the carpentry finished and the stairs put in and the yeah the it's doors. a really involved and I process. got into it and I was like wow I'm on if I'm on a solid structure in my house. And then, yeah, straight away, it's just like, oh, but you know what I need? <laughs> I need <laughs> you know windows. Really I need furniture. And, you know, and then Adriana came home and she was like, oh, it would be nice if there was like, if this wasn't just a before you know four it, bare walls. <laughs> before you know we're going to be like, that cheese wasn't cut right, man. I was <laughs> I got we're getting cheese. increasingly. Yeah. Where's my cheese crater? <laughs> yeah, we're getting increasingly soft and wimpy as things get nicer here. Yeah, but but the process doesn't stop. The process of just needing the next and increasingly being unhappy. Thing. Yeah, that that, that's tricky. That comes enough. from us. Definitely, <laughs> it's not inherent in it's, the process. Yeah, there's something <laughs> there's something inside me lacking. I yeah, exactly. Oh, I gotta break up this touching moment real quick. Um, I'm gonna, I gotta go hop over to the neighbor's. Yeah, so Jeremy's in the middle of helping our neighbor and uh, another business around here, Love Probiotics, set up a mushroom production facility. So we're gonna say bye to Jeremy for this session, and we'll catch him on the next one. Bye, Jer. Yeah, See you later. Go have fun. For listening to me <laughs> for a while. Next time, you'll tell us all about your mushroom system. I will actually. Sure. All right. So yeah, back to the house. So as much as. You know, there are a certain amount of luxuries that are not entirely necessary and will continue to sort of make these places comfortable. Having clean, hygienic areas to bathe yourself and clean your facilities are actually one of the essentials that I always list. And I'm sure pretty much everyone would agree with me yeah, on that. Yeah, it's pretty important, especially if you live on a farm, not having a place. Yeah. To and, you know, look, we've gotten we've gotten by surprisingly well and the girls here have been really awesome with dealing with the fact that we're showering outdoors and we have a small compost toilet which we just recently moved down the hill a little bit because it was in the covered area which will later be turning into the kitchen area. But just take a couple steps back um, with the redesign and figuring out that we could each have private bathrooms without really increasing the cost of what the original design was which was having like a whole bathhouse area where there would be like two toilet units, two shower units, and a bank of sinks. For the same price, we can have, you know, smaller but more private bathroom facilities. And it was definitely um, a shift that we wanted to make. So, I've been involved with sort of framing out the walls around the back there, installing the plumbing. We had to do some more excavation because obviously the drainage plan shifted when you relocate a facility like that. And now we're kind of 
in the design phase of figuring out where the drainage should go, where the two-stage septic system that would uh, overflow into a leach field would go so that we can make the best use of those resources. And if you plan from the beginning or whenever you're doing renovations or redesigns on managing any waste streams from even a dead structure like this, I mean, obviously, we've focused on all natural materials and quite frankly if this thing were to fall over the only thing that we couldn't put back into the garden or back into the land without any real damage would be like the bolts and screws and some of the piping and plumbing below everything else should be able to decompose um, or just integrate back into the earth because we've used bahareke walls most of the structural components are either wood or bamboo and just the roofing with the uh, corrugated steel on top is, you know, obviously not something that's going to decompose. So we made those decisions early on. Uh, it was a little more expensive to do it that way, but it, it really matched our ethics and what we wanted to promote with this place. Like, I don't think I could in very good conscience continue teaching natural building workshops if we lived in a cement house. Even though it would be much faster and cheaper to build. It is faster and cheaper, but there's so many hidden costs in that process. And that's kind of what's holding back the industry of natural building right now. Yeah. Is, well, the same with externalities. It's the same with farming. Like, yeah, totally. Industrial farming is heavily subsidized as are fossil fuels. Which so, it's is, not a level playing field which either. Which kind of the funny thing about the whole like political debate. It's really so stupid. It's like this, you know, what are we doing... The, like you know a lot of a lot of a permaculture's mentality is is kind of libertarian actually when you see it and you're like yeah it surprises me a lot of times these people it's making models that are not dependent on these externalities and but it also surprises me sometimes and being people propped who, up who artificially identify as being kind of like libertarian right wing whatever neoconservatives or whatever they call themselves uh, that they don't support uh, this type of sustainability because they, they see it sometimes as somehow as like slowing down the economy or whatever. It's it's like not take away the subsidies, take away the all. These, yeah, really level the playing real, field. Really level playing field and see who's competitive at that point. Yeah, and it's not the people constantly importing energy and other materials from far away not it's the people all. who are doing with the resources that they have on and their so site if you if you tilt the playing or if you even level the playing field suddenly these enterprises n n become not just kind of like environmentally friendly they become the only thing that would make economic sense yeah but the only profitable ones you know unfortunately both but we live in a very lopsided building, economy so you're, you're sort of fighting uphill a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it's really weird that doing things sort of the common sense way and working within your means and your resources is surprisingly not competitive uh, when it comes down to just numbers. So, anyway, working within those difficult uh, situations and, and, you know, it's a little bit different everywhere you go in the world. Obviously, there aren't quite as many uh, of those regulations and subsidies here in Guatemala than perhaps in the United States where I come from or, or Ireland where you're from, Neil. But uh, keeping those in mind and realizing... Still kind that of are. Even if there aren't subsidies, there's this like lack of charging for or lack of taking externalities into, yeah. a, into account, you know, especially yeah, for in sure. the building industry. And, and in, there's different types of subsidies here, like chemical fertilizers get given yeah. out for free. Oh, election season, everybody's just handing out, what is it, the KXP? Bags or? of... 
Triple or MPK, MPK. Yeah, triple keen so it's yeah. like 15, 15, 15. Yeah. In Ireland, it's 10, 10, 20. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Uh, different ratios of macronutrients, but of, yeah. Of Mostly phosphorus your, and nitrogen. Yeah. for your land. Yeah, basically, you know. But getting back to the point of figuring out ways to y- utilize and actually treat them as a resource, the waste streams that come from a building. So, obviously, we're going to put in uh, a septic system as just kind of one of the more, uh, obviously, one of the cheaper and longer lasting solutions that are minimal maintenance here. Settling out solid waste and overflowing into a leach field where it can be put down into the subsoil so that it's available to plant roots. By then it's tempered off and it's not going to burn the root systems and it doesn't have any chance of overflowing or coming back up to the surface and possibly posing a risk with pathogens or other things. Now we're also going to be doing gray water and that's mostly going to be coming from the outspout from the kitchen. So we have to put in some sieves and some filters in there to make sure that the lines don't clog up. Obviously, when you're working with uh, kitchen waste, you have a whole lot of like little scraps of food and sometimes grease. Well, we will put in a grease trap as well. Again, mostly just not to clog the lines or to put hard to break down materials into whatever sump uh, that we direct it into. So right now we're in the design phase of figuring out the best way to use those resources. And we were talking a little bit about this before the start of, of recording this conversation. Pretty much all of the projects that we're involved with here all go back to putting in nutrition into the soil through one form or another. Even on my side, which isn't directly working with cultivating plants, Constantly looking at what your waste streams are, how you can use them as resources, and trying to close loop the cycles, um, sometimes in complex ways. Like, obviously, our food system is coming from the garden, our waste stream is going into a different area, but it all sort of loops around and cycles through the systems that we're putting in here. So, along those lines um, of continuing to put in fertility and maximize the resources and the energy flows here... Let's talk a little bit about um, kind of stepping back from the beginning and defining that as one of the key goals anytime you want to try any sort of regenerative project, ecosystem rehabilitation, farming, anything along those lines, having that as one of your key defined goals and then building strategies and plans of action from there is, is something that I've always sort of struggled with in the initial stages with clients because they often come to us already thinking about how they want to implement things and a strategy to to get things moving without first defining the goals really clearly. How have you found that with the landscaping clients? And then I'll talk a little bit about uh, with the natural building side of things. Um, like what's, what's sort of the process that you walk clients through to help them define their goals and really get an idea of what they're aiming for before they just start putting things on the landscape, which potentially could be really far from what they say that they want to do? Uh, you know, I always just encourage people to go through a, a sort of formal design process, you know. And well, what does that mean for you? It means expressing your goals your dreams, your vision in as clear a way as possible and then assessing the land and seeing if there's a compatibility between those two. Where and, the overlap is. And, and continually reassessing the goals and, and 
and the resources the person has available with the land. Um, and then once that's done, ultimately letting the landscape sort of dictate the project. With the only times I struggle with designs are is it's actually particularly hard when people have this dream building, you know, this has happened one case in particular this like dream building that's been designed by an architect who didn't really see or understand mm. the landscape at all and they have this like amazing graphic design that looks great on a video on a walkthrough but then when you actually look at the landscape it just yeah it, uh, the dimensions fit but in terms of the topography of the landscape it, it doesn't work at all and so you end up kind having of just forcing things forcing it in there and it's like and then the kind of like landscape suffers. It's kind of in the wrong place. You know, one basic thing with buildings is you just have to put them in a place where the waste streams can be dealt with effectively downhill. Um, you don't just clonk them in there and and then react to everything that happens after that. Um, so, yeah, you know, it all comes back to doing a holistic design as opposed to like first designing the house and then seeing where the leach field and the garden and the composting system, you know, it's you really, the whole thing should flow together as one. So none of these things, housing, you know, houses and landscape ideally should not at all be designed as separate things. But yeah, it, it happens a lot. I, I, honestly, a lot of the time what happens is I come in and I see houses and I'm doing landscaping and it's just like, okay, I, I, you just do the best now with what you have. Especially How, if, permanent structures have already been installed yeah. usually in, in landscaping projects they have you know yeah. so it's just like all right the house is already there it could have been <laughs> probably positioned a lot better and it's one of the reasons why i love working with you guys as a team because I, though i've done some permaculture designs kind of smaller ones on a residential scale i'm usually the guy who they call in at the beginning when they're thinking about their houses and that's when we can work as a team and be like that's okay, when to get people yeah that's, that's when, when you really want to start holistic designs and um, yeah, really start on a strong yeah. foot. Well, one of the things that I'm always struggling with is though I get really interesting clients with ambitious projects and, and definitely ethics that fit what we're trying to do. I mean, obviously we just don't attract the type of people who are trying to put up skyscrapers, but, um, there's just so much misinformation out there, especially in the natural building world, about the cost of certain things, about how certain materials form, a general misunderstanding about what materials you should use based on the climate where you're at. And a lot of it is walking people back to figure out what it is they're trying to achieve by putting a house or a structure on the land. Because though they may already have an idea or a design in mind or a set of aesthetics and a bunch of pictures from Pinterest, which is great. You should definitely, you know, start there and, and get some ideas, not just come into it blind. But people often find that what they're trying to accomplish is not so hinged on the aesthetic that they're married to. The aesthetic is extremely malleable and you can add it to almost any type of functional design. But when we get back to talking about what it is they want to achieve by putting a, a building on there. If it's if it's a residence, it's, you know, security and comfort in the home, space that facilitates their activities and um, bringing in community and interacting with the people that they want to spend their lives with. Those are sort of abstract things that a lot of people don't think about when they think about designing a building. So this is usually when I start to walk people back to the beginning and talk about 
these intangible ideas of what it is that you want in your life and how a building can then facilitate those intangibles. Uh, it definitely works into landscapes as well. But again, like you said, usually by the time you've come in, a lot of the perm or the yeah the permanent structures have already been installed, and so this is when I really like working with you guys to kind of figure out how an entire ecosystem can include the the buildings, which you know are not dynamic. They are usually degrading are over the time. They are but, dynamic, though. All but they're the contributors. That are, yeah, if, if they're designed thing, correctly, I mean, you, you know, roof order is always a huge one. That varies massively depending on the climate you're mm-hmm. in. Um, the microclimates created by structures like that too. Yeah, uh, the it's a huge dynamic element out, within it. The water it. coming out of them, roof water, grey water, black water. Oh, especially in dry climates, can be potentially the biggest water source for almost it the entire year. It definitely is, uh, and it always is. You know, I mean, here it's different. Here you need to actually get here. That's the one I find a source of water that I'm okay with letting go because mm. it's clean water. Yeah, and here where you have like, you know. 18 centimeters of water falling in a severe event you don't need to try and hang on to all that water no drainage is important at that point drainage is important you need and and it's clean water it's distilled water so if that's going back down to the lake that i'm I'm fine with that you know uh and again because we have a river here near us drinking water is never an issue it's just a couple of easy filtration steps away from being drinkable um so but yeah, you're talking about huge, um, huge quantities of water that get uh, hit, hit the roof and, and get moved through a house. And again, just making sure that those move through the landscape appropriately is is really, really important. Yeah. I mean, buildings really are the epicenter of energy um, collection and dispersal. Um, and, 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 and relative location as well, like where the building, where the other elements on the on the landscape are situated yeah. in relationship to the building is, is also hugely important. Um, yeah, that, that siting portion of putting in a building is arguably more important than any of the other design components later. Because so no matter how well you design the structure, if you sited it poorly, you can't overcome it being in a flood zone. You right. can't overcome it being always in the shade on the north slope of a yeah. of a mountain or something yeah. you know but those th- you know, those those things are really basic and the landscape does dictate them to you they are yeah. basic but you'd be amazed at how many of the buildings are are constructed without considering those things. oh yeah i mean look the 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 thing about getting into this kind of like holistic design sort of thing and and, and permaculture design is that you really realize that if you if you if you learn these principles and if you if you set yourself up in this, that, you know, I sometimes say to our students that come here that, you know, if you understand contouring uh, and and basic sort of key line design that you can learn in a couple of days, you're already a better land man. You're already potentially a better land manager than professional um, agricultural engineers and and and. Who don't consider those things. Who don't consider those things. And yeah. so the, the work they do, even though, you know... From They're highly competent at those things that they have learned. From a, from a very uh, uh, focused engineering point of view can sometimes yeah. be, is often very competent work, but the damage it does over the years that those structures or those those projects are in place is, is enormous, you yeah. know, because of these yeah. sort of basic things that they don't take into account. 
Indeed. Well, we're going to start to wrap up on that note. Uh, if anybody's interested in finding more about the details of how we walk through our own design process, there was an episode and a P- an accompanying PDF that I put out uh, probably about two or three months ago now, um, all on the Abundant Edge design criteria checklist. So I'll leave links to that in the show notes for this episode. And we'll wrap things up for this month. Don't forget to check in again in another four weeks where we'll be talking about all of the projects and the advancement on our projects here. Probably our new composting project with the allergies from the sea. Yeah, I'm sure that will be From well advanced by yeah, then, I have be, no doubt. It'll yep. already be a, like a Fortune 500 company probably. By yeah, then. quite likely. Man, I'll just be happy if we've all got working bathrooms by then. <laughs> That's the next milestone for me. You guys work on composting algae all you want. <laughs> well, again, thanks so much for tuning in and we'll catch you again soon. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session.